Hi, and welcome to Malicious Life, in collaboration with Cyber Reason. I'm Ran Levy. Yes, I know, I know, you're all waiting for the second part of our last episode, The Fall of Mount Gox. We're still working on it, and we'll have it ready in a week or so, per our usual episode release schedule. In the meantime, here's something different. In between episodes, you know. Two weeks ago, I played for you an episode from the Darknet Diaries podcast, and today I'd like to play for you another episode, this time from a podcast called Cyber. Cyber is a new podcast from Motherboard, a very well-known and respected technology blog and online magazine. The episode you'll hear shortly is about the shady market of data aggregators and brokers who sell smartphone location data to bounty hunters, bail bondsmen, landlords, used car salesmen, and anyone who can afford it. We'll learn how bounty hunters go right up to the edge of what the law allows and use neuro-linguistic mind manipulation to get people to give them information. Very, very exciting stuff, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I'll see you again on the other side of the episode. Enjoy. This month, motherboard reporter Joseph Cox transferred $300 to a bounty hunter. Moments later, he got sent a Google Maps screenshot. The bounty hunter had found the current location of the phone that Joseph asked him to track. No hacking required. A report from website Motherboard revealed T-Mobile and other cell providers sold data to third parties, resulting in unauthorized information sharing, ultimately allowing a bounty hunter to track a reporter's phone location. Motherboard's investigation into the shady, unauthorized sale of cell phone location tracking data shows the terrifying ways in which our personal data is sold and mishandled. First, by telecom companies like T-Mobile, Sprint, and AT&T, and then by a series of increasingly obscure middlemen and data aggregators. These companies have names like Zamigo and Microbuilt. You've probably never heard of them, but they know where you are. This week, we're taking a deep dive into that world. First, Motherboard Editor-in-Chief Jason Kebler will talk to Joseph about how he did the investigation and about how bounty hunters and debt collectors skirt the law. Then, I'll talk to Oregon Senator Ron Wyden about the fallout from the story and about his years-long quest to keep your private data private. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. So Joseph, earlier this month, we published an investigation that you've been working on for quite some time. In the piece, you bought location data from a phone from someone that we had consent to track from a bounty hunter source. Where did that information come from? Yeah, so this wasn't a hacking tool or really even any sort of like spying device. It was actually data that came, funnily enough, from the telco itself. Uh, in this case, T-Mobile. Um, the way your phone works, it's constantly communicating with phone networks, saying where it's approximately located. So T-Mobile or AT&T or Sprint can send text messages and phone calls to you. But they sell that data. 
and they sell it for a profit. And it trickles down through various different companies until it reaches this bounty hunter who provides it to us. Right. So did you, I saw some people saying after we reported that you bought this on the dark web. I think one of the companies said that we did not find this on the dark web. This is not like a dark web service as far as we know. Yeah, this isn't a dark website as in it's not a tour website like Alphabay where you could buy drugs or weapons or whatever else they're selling nowadays. This was more a word of mouth network of bounty hunters who were selling this sort of um, capability because so many different industries and companies have access to this data. Roadside assistance, car rental, even apparently property tenants who want to do a background check or maybe renting their accommodation so many different people have access to this data, and clearly some of them also resell it themselves. Right. A big one, and I think we can get into this later, is bounty hunters and debt collectors and so-called skip tracers, which I guess is an industry term for essentially bounty hunting and finding people who have skipped bail or have, uh, you know, owe someone some money. You know, these are being sold to private parties by data aggregators who get it from telecom companies directly. And this is a pretty big business. You know, this this is not just being used for, you know, services that are good for the world. Yeah, because um, probably the two main quote-unquote legitimate use cases of this data would be roadside assistance. So let's say you've broken down somewhere and the insurance company or whoever's going to come tow the vehicle uh, is trying to geolocate the stranded customer. That's one use case. Another is bank fraud or more generally financial fraud. Let's say you do a online transaction and the company wants to check that, well, is this person actually in the same country where they're claiming to be? Maybe the IP address matches and the phone location matches and the address. So they should be on the West Coast or something like that. Those are two pretty standard um, use cases. But then, yeah, of course you have the bounty hunters, the bail bondsman industry, and this black market where even I can buy this data and I'm not a law enforcement official and I'm obviously not a licensed bounty hunter either. And although I did have a source in the industry, I was still able to get hold of it and I shouldn't be able to do that. Let's talk a little bit about how this ping actually went down. Um, I remember when we were actually doing it, we were sort of like, you know, they can do the ping at any time and we can get the real-time location of that phone basically instantly. So how did it work from your end as much as you're able to say? Yeah, so I had to contact my source and then he was buying the location ping through his own source. As I mentioned, this is quite complicated trickle-down of this data access. Um, so I just tell my source, hey, please go do that. I give him a phone number. He passes on to his source, who then he's the one who actually has the data access, who can actually tap into the system, for lack of a better word, and get the location. Originally, we tried this with a Verizon number. Um, Verizon will not speak to me. They will speak to other publications, but for some reason they don't want to reply to my request for comment. But it seems that the bounty hunters do not want to geolocate Verizon phones. And from what I understand and how I've tried to work it out is that it appears Verizon will send a text message to the phone um, when it's being located or when it's about to be located. Clearly, if you're a bounty hunter, you don't really want that because it's going to be um, tipping off the target. So that failed. And instead, we provided a T-Mobile number. 
Um, my source said that the the capability will work on T-Mobile, AT&T, or Sprint. All of those companies admitted they were selling this data in this way, but T-Mobile was the one that we successfully located. Once I gave the number, my source got the ping and then sent the information back. It just looked like a Google Maps interface with a little dot on the map and a circle indicating around 500 meters of where this particular phone was in a specific part of um, Queens, New York. So it's really easy to understand. It's not even the GPS coordinates just by themselves or some sort, some sort of like obtuse computer language. It is literally just a Google Maps interface. So anybody can understand, hey, that's where the person is I'm trying to track. And the reason that this works is it's not hacking your phone. It's not using the GPS coordinates from your phone. It's using the cell towers that your phone is connected to, which is why that data is able to come from the telecom providers. I just want to be clear about that. This is a very similar thing uh, that happened or was uncovered a few months ago by the New York Times and Senator Ron Wyden, who Ben is going to be talking to later in this episode, uh, the Securus company. Can you just explain what Securus was? Yeah, so in our investigation with the bounty hunters, we focused on a company called Microbuilt. And then in the New York Times and Ron Wyden's investigation, in that same part of the supply chain, sort of towards the bottom, uh, the companies that's selling it to the end clients, they focused on one called Securus. Now, Securus was selling it to law enforcement uh, who did not require a warrant, so prison officials and that sort of thing. And they found documented cases of low-level law enforcement abusing this access to track other officials and even judges. Um, so after that, the telcos cut off access to that company. And then, of course, several months later, we find that not only are they still providing data to very shady companies, but they're even doing it in an arguably even worse use case, which is not even law enforcement, but private businesses and individuals. So I do want to talk about why this is so concerning, because like you mentioned, you know, there are legitimate uses for this, but a lot of the companies that are ultimately buying this data are a bit shady. And so I want to just track it from the telecom company down to you. Let's just make that very clear. How did you get this information? Like T-Mobile, what was the next company? What was the next company? And what do these companies do? Sure. So there were several different entities in this entire chain, around about six. It starts with T-Mobile, the telcos. It then goes down to so-called location aggregators. There's two of these, one called Zumigu or Zumigu, and Location Smart. These are the ones just directly underneath the telcos. They then sell it to an unknown number of companies. This is where Microbuilt fits in. This is where Securus fits in as well. And then under that, there's an even greater number of end-user clients. In our case, this was a bounty hunter company. Now, that's where the quote-unquote legitimate trade ends, um, because then they will just use the data that they've eventually obtained. But that's also where the black market uh, enters. So that bounty hunter company sold that data access to a source of mine, who then sold it to me. It's a very long, convoluted supply chain of data. But the further you get away from it, uh, from the top of the chain, the telcos clearly had no idea this is how their data was being used until we told them. Right. And the further away you get, I think that this is editorializing a little bit, but the further away you get, the less and less legitimate it gets. 
Um, you know, these companies are a bit shady. We looked into some of them, some of their just social media presences and their YouTube presences. And this is uh, Zumigo CEO Sharag Bakshi a few years ago talking about why he founded the company. Zumigo has built a unique solution that leverages the power of mobile data, including location, to solve some of the industry's toughest challenges. Today, you will see a solution for transaction validation, device authentication, and KYC or know your customer. But I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the power of our location data for marketing. Our unique patent-pending technology makes it the only solution that can locate a phone anywhere globally, no matter, no matter where it is roaming. Using a GPS simulator or a Wi-Fi router, it's easy to spoof where a mobile phone thinks it is, but not when you do it from the network. So Sharag in that clip says that Zumigo uses location data for the purposes of fraud prevention and in some cases marketing. We don't know which companies Zumigo ultimately sells to, but we do know that Microbuilt is one of them. And Microbuilt is a credit reporting agency, I guess, is how they bill themselves. But they're also a company that sells databases of people to bail bondsmen and used car salesmen and landlords. And Joseph, do you remember the name of the specific tool that they, they have? Yeah, so this one was called Mobile Device Verify. And that's the location tool for finding phones across the United States. Right. So uh, if you check out Microbuild's YouTube, they advertise to bail bondsmen and to so-called skip tracers, which is essentially bounty hunters. And here is one of, here's an ad that they put on their YouTube for one of their products. He is a master of escape. He can disappear into thin air. Phone number disconnected. Address non-existent. He's on his way to where he thinks he can't be found, to where he thinks he's safe. Think again. Because now there's a way to know everything. Who he is, where he's been, and even where he's going. What did it take to expose this master of deceit and deception? A 25-cent search report. Microbuilt Enhanced People Search. It keeps you one step ahead of anyone. From accidental skips to professional debtors. It's the world's most advanced database for collectors. Now, it's updated with all new data sources, including information that is reported directly to Microbuilt and aggregated only at Microbuilt. Microbuilt Enhanced People Search. Gotcha. And then, I just want to be clear, last year they had an audio webinar where they talked to people in the quote-unquote asset management and recovery industry. And this is where things get pretty shady, in, in my opinion. Uh, these are the debt collectors and the bounty hunters. And one of these webinars, which was sponsored by Microbuilt, was called What You Can and Can't Do When Skip Tracing. How do you sort of know when you're being, you know, what, when you're sort of getting to the line of being deceptive or maybe when you've crossed the line of being deceptive? We, we train our tracers. So many times when you're talking to third parties, you'll be asked a question like, well, is this about a bill? Is this about a debt? Do they owe you money? Who do you work for? 
And, you know, if you tell the people, I'm sorry, but under federal law, I can't give you that information, or I'm not going to give you that information, obviously, you're not going to get anything out of them at all. We teach a very advanced neurolinguistic technique there when someone says, "Is are you calling about a bill? We repeat the question, are you calling about a bill? And then we would say something like, that's a very odd, strange, or unusual. Nobody wants to be odd, strange, or unusual. So we say, that's a very strange question. Why would you ask me that? And they will reply back to you. You know, we don't have to answer questions, but we're taught from the time we're in grade school up that we do. But they will answer that question. Well, I know that he lost his job and et cetera, or I know they moved. I know they're having trouble. I know somebody repossessed the car. And then you reply with, with another neurolinguistic word, just really. And the conversation moves on. You never had to answer their question. You gave, you actually gained information from them without giving them anything. So consequently, you know, that is a good technique to train your collectors. And then they're not going to be breaking law. They're not going to be saying things that they shouldn't say. That's one way that we do it. You have gone right to the line. And we talk about stepping over the line. Well, you, you haven't broken the law. But let me tell you, you have gone right to the fiery precipice and looked over into the, into the flames. But you haven't broken the law. Uh, you have to be careful. And again, you know, only very experienced collectors can use techniques like that. Only very experienced skip tracers. So that voice you just heard was Ron Brown. He is the president of CSI Group, which is an Oklahoma City-based asset management and recovery company. He also runs a website called Manhunt Seminars. And he's very into saying that his company hunts the most dangerous game, which is humans. Um, it's just kind of like, it's, it's really wild. And on this webinar, uh, he talks about the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, which is a law passed by the U.S. government that basically sets the rules for what debt collectors and bounty hunters can ask friends of the person that they're trying to find without actually breaking the law. So he talks about going right up to this, this end of the line. Um, and he talks about quote, neuro-linguistic techniques and manipulation to get information that he can then use to actually locate the person. And from these webinars, it was very clear that people are using these tools. It's not just, you know, old-fashioned social media searches and calling up, you know, friends and relatives. They are buying data from these data brokers. They are using companies like Microbuilt, which use companies like Zumigo, which get data from the telecom companies. So, you know, this all does trickle down in a pretty scary way and in a way that, you know, might be technically legal. I think at one point he mentions, you know, a lot of bounty hunters are actually using more third-party data brokers because the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act doesn't actually cover this. We use a waterfall technique when we're skip tracing. And obviously, with, with agencies today and the different rates, you know, we'll start out with what we term free sites. And if we can't find them on the social sites, the free sites, and get the information, then we'll drop down to the pay sites, uh, the different data brokers that are gathering up the data for us, and we pay for that. But, you know, we have tracked that, the cost of it versus the recovery percentage. And it is like a waterfall. You gather at some at each level. So there are these quote-unquote legitimate uses of this data, at least technically legal uses at the moment, which do include, you know, the things like Ron Brown was just talking about. 
But once you even go a step further where just anyone can buy location tracking data, why is this such a threat? Why is this so scary? Yeah, as the data spreads out from the original source being the telcos, the risk of abuse just dramatically increases. Not only is it ending up in the hands of bounty hunters, but then, of course, those individuals may just spy on their girlfriends, as the source told me is what happens uh, among these people. Um, Once a person has access to that data, they can, it appears, do whatever they want with it. Because Microbuilt, Zumigu, the telco companies, they only found out about this abuse when we told them. They didn't They weren't already tracking it in the first place. They only found out about it and then cut it off when they were informed. So what sort of abuse has been happening up to this point? We have no idea. Right, exactly. And someone could just be doing it for whatever purpose they feel like. I mean, maybe it would be very suspicious if someone was locating 10,000 phones in a day or something like that. But if it's based on a trust model and the company that you bought the data from, uh, you've told them, look, I'm going to use this for a legitimate purpose. You don't need to worry. I'll always get consent. Clearly, that consent means nothing or the promise of consent because we were just able to buy it anyway and find a phone without any warning of the phone owner. Right. And before we published this story, we reached out to Zumigo and Microbuilt, who both said, you know, we don't tolerate abuse in our system, but clearly they weren't looking for it that closely. Right, yeah. There's a difference between not tolerating abuse and actually enforcing against it. And clearly, they weren't really doing um, the latter. And I think Microbuilt said, like, hey, look, the the bounty hunter or the bail bondsman company that sold this data as a middleman, they they said they were going to use it for a legitimate purpose, and they have a lot of money coming in from uh, from their bounty hunting. So, they were kind of, it feels like pushing responsibility away, but you can't just go on the promises um, of your end clients. Like there can be technical measures such as always pushing a text message to the phone or maybe obviously some, some legal mechanisms as well. But just doing this entirely based on trust is clearly not something that's working. And it seems the telcos know that as well because they've now cut off this access. Right. And one one other thing I heard during the webinar the webinars that I listened to are is the fact that it's very important to these companies that this all be invisible, that they don't want to alert the person that they're looking for that they are looking for them. So, you know, they were talking about, you know, if you are using Facebook to find someone, make sure you don't friend them, do quote unquote read only of Facebook. And uh and it's interesting you mentioned the telcos because they're obviously very in- involved here. They're very, you know, it's ultimately they're making money off of this data and it's something that they should be ultimately responsible for because that is sort of who you're originally giving the data to or sort of unwittingly giving it to. But it's interesting, they are actually involved in this in a different way too. And we don't necessarily, I don't know the specifics of how this works but one of the people on the webinar, uh, his name is Raf Lisinski, who's the senior vice president of finance at Diversif- Diversified Consultants, Inc., mentioned that the telecom companies are actually one of his biggest clients in terms of finding some of these people to collect debts from. So, for example, um, you know, more than half of our uh, business uh, lies in the telecom field. So when you're collecting for a cell phone, you know, that the consu- that very cell phone that the consumer no longer has, 
uh, Skip Trace phone numbers, um, in essence, become the lifeblood um, of the operation floor. Um, the reason that we utilize three Skip Trace vendors um, is because we found that certain vendors may have exclusivity contracts, you know, with certain uh, data sources. And being that we're so heavily uh, vetted in the, tele- in the telecom arena, um, for us, each count upon placement goes through three different skip trace vendors um, because we're looking for the cell phone number that that consumer, you know, essentially no longer has. So not only are they giving the data out, they rely on bounty hunters to find people who are not paying their bills to the telecom companies. Hmm. Does that make sense? Which is kind of, yeah, kind of a wild, like, vicious cycle of them not only selling the data, but then, of course, actually benefiting it, benefiting from its use case as well, yeah. Right, and this isn't necessarily from the cell phone location data because they actually have that, but companies like MicroBuilt have other databases and they, you know, build out webs of information about who else you are connected to and stuff like that. Um, the specific use case that Raf was talking about was uh, people who get a subsidy to buy their phone or lease their phone from a cell phone provider, and then they just like turn it off and disappear off the map. Maybe they sell the phone, maybe it just disappears. And you know the phone company technically still owns that phone, so then they are looking to get it back or looking to get their money. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it makes sense. I mean, you can almost see why uh, the telcos would turn to certain data sets to be able to do this. I mean, it's their property and they want to retrieve it, but it is still sort of an uncomfortable alliance there where they're also providing, at least some cases, the data that these companies may then also go on and sell. It just seems like a very strange relationship. Right, right. So the I want to end here by talking about what the fallout from this has been. This was obviously a huge story when we published it. Um, you know, you went on various talk shows, nightly news, um, I think Tucker Carlson wanted you on. I, I, you didn't do it, but uh, you know this. Yeah, I passed on that. Yeah, <laughs> this uh, this was a, a big deal, and it's gotten a lot of attention and some actual changes. Yeah. Um, so Santa Ron Wyden was quoted in the original story. Um, it seemed appropriate, obviously, to contact him because he has this data privacy bill that would curb this sort of thing. And to be clear, I mean, I'm not endorsing either way whether legislation would be a good idea here. It's just important to include that context for readers that, hey, this is one of the avenues that lawmakers are exploring. And then after the piece, um, various other senators joined in and called for the FCC to investigate. Um, We then had a congressional committee calling for an emergency meeting uh, with the FCC so they can get a briefing on what the hell is going on with this telco data. Um, Chairman of the FCC declined to do that during the ongoing government shutdown. We'll see if when the government comes back, if the government comes back, um, (laughs) whether whether the FCC does investigate, um, but there's certainly growing pressure on them to do so. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, outside of of the political realm, the telcos, AT&T, T-Mobile and Sprint um, have not only cut off access to microbuilt, They've also said that they're going to stop the sale of location data to third parties or data aggregators in general. Um, and that includes the roadside assistance ones and that sort of thing. Clearly, this is such a liability, 
even when they're trying to go for the limited use cases, the data is just falling out of falling out of their hands and into other people's. It's just out of control. So from a PR perspective, and maybe even from just a legislation perspective, eventually, it probably makes more sense just to cut these companies off entirely. Right. And uh, we don't need to get super into it, but I can think of other ways of doing roadside assistance besides cell phone tower data. I mean, there are apps for this where you can actually give them your GPS data and, and stuff like that knowingly. Yeah, yeah. If you're um, with an American insurance company or American roadside assistance company, maybe, and pres- presumably some already do this because it just seems so obvious, right? Um, but you can download an app and then, hey, I consent to have my location tracked. Please, could you come find me? Or whatever it may be. And that data... Uh, we'll still be going over a phone network. You'll still be going over 3G or 4G or whatever, but it's going through the app and it's sending the phone's GPS locations and crucially it's doing it with consent. The user is pushing the button to say, hey, I would like to be located now. And that's the fundamental difference between um, the telco's approach where they've had with selling the data and the end use cases and whatever is going to come afterwards. Through legislation, or through any technical measures, it's going to rest on consent. Because otherwise, we're just going to be in the same issue all over again. Right. So I'm going to throw it back now to Ben, who is going to talk to Senator Ron Wyden about cell phone location tracking, his privacy bill. He's been very anti-surveillance, um, you know, one of the most outspoken senators on this issue over the last, I don't know, decade or so. So uh, here is Ben and Senator Ron Wyden. Senator Wyden... What was your reaction to the story that Joseph put out last week? Well, first of all, I was just thrilled that Joe Cox ran that piece because it really allowed us to bust open again this issue where we thought the wireless carriers were dragging their feet. And for people who are following this, let me just kind of give a quick historical summary. We essentially caught uh, through this prison information sharing operation in 2018 that the wireless carriers, and there's really only four of them, it's really a monopoly, a real sweetheart you know, arrangement, were making it uh, possible uh, for what I call the bottom feeders of you know, the uh, internet, the people who are data brokers, buying location information from all kinds of shady uh, operations. Uh, When we caught it, all of the carriers sent me letters in 2018 saying, we're going to stop this, period, full stop. I mean, they understood the point that we and good folks at Motherboard and Vice had had been um, making, and that is, you know, location tracking is a national security and a personal safety nightmare. So we catch them in 2018. They claim that they're going to stop. Not a whole lot of qualifiers. They just say, we're going to stop. And then uh, we had uh, Joe Cox and uh, uh, the good folks at, uh, at Motherboard basically get a bounty hunter I give them a couple hundred bucks, and uh, we saw that uh, uh, at least three of the four major carriers had basically fed the American consumer a bunch of baloney. And so I think it was a real public service. So now, I mean, that's the thing, right? So this is a year old. This is this is not new. So what what are you prepared to do as a senator to stop this issue, to make sure that this doesn't happen, that you don't get another letter where the carriers tell you, oh, it's never going to happen again. It's going to end right now. 
blah, 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 because it has. It's, it's continued. And, and, and I want to pick up the discussion right there because that's the point that I've been making is, hey, they made these promises to me in writing in 2018. Now they're making these promises again. And so a lot of folks in the media and the like have said, so Ron, what do you think of this? And I said, uh, permit me to be a little bit skeptical. I'll believe it when I actually see it. And there is a real pattern now in the technology space where essentially these companies get caught in irresponsible conduct. One. Two, they apologize. They say, this is a bad thing. And three, they pledge that it won't happen again. And then, of course, it does happen again. And you can almost set your clock by it. I call it the wash, rinse, and repeat cycle in the technology area. And so I want it understood, one, I'll believe it when I um, see it. And, you know, people like John Laguerre have already kind of changed their story initially. He didn't say anything about how in 2018 you had to wait until March of 2019. Well, that's what he's, you know, saying now. We've got to embed it in black letter law. And as part of my privacy legislation, we have a provision that finally will have some real teeth so that when you catch them, you don't just slap their wrist or wait for their next promise which will be followed by some pretty much meaningless gesture. We have a tough provision we call do not track so that people who are following this this debate would have an option to really send a signal, a signal in the marketplace that they don't want to be tracked. Now, I, you know, I understand that uh, Senator Kamala Harris is also, you know, she's outraged by this story as well. Do you see this as sort of a bipartisan issue as well? Is there Republican support for something like this? Well, I hope so. Uh, I saw today that several Republican House members had sent a letter expressing concern. And frankly, members of Congress are good at expressing concern. You know, the question is, are you going to go beyond expressing concern and be for tough, enforceable legislation that has real teeth? For example, One provision of my draft privacy bill, and for people who are following this debate, they can go online and we'd love to have their comments, is we want to send a signal about how serious these privacy issues are. As I say, I think that potentially they are, you know, national security, personal security nightmares. In fact, uh, again, when it comes to expressing concern, the companies are pretty good. Sheryl uh, Sandberg and Jack Dorsey came to an open intelligence committee hearing. We don't have very many of them, so I always use them as kind of rare special opportunities. And I said point blank, I believe personal data and personal privacy are now national security issues. I would like to ask you, Ms. Sandberg, representing Facebook, and Mr. Dorsey, um, I would like to ask you all, you know, point blank, do you believe personal privacy is a national security issue? Both of them said yes. So you just keep pushing the rock up the hill. And as part of our legislation, I want to make clear that if the CEO at one of the country's top companies, you know, companies with more than a billion dollars in revenue, 
lies to the federal government, lies to the American people. And the agency that would be responsible in our bill for handling this is the Federal Trade Commission. If they lie to the federal government, they would no longer just get a slap on the wrist. They'd face serious financial penalties and face the possibility of jail. And that is essentially what's done with respect to the big financial institutions and Sarbanes-Oxley. What I'm here to say to people who are following uh, this, if it's good enough for the big banks, it ought to be good enough for the big technology companies. I, I mean, what you're describing is how some of these big telcos lied to you last year. Because as Joe Cox showed, it was quite the opposite that this continued. Not only did Joe Cox show it, Joe Cox basically, by giving a few hundred bucks to the bounty hunter, showed that these companies could get away with it, essentially with impunity. You know, they basically were showing their disdain for um, legislators, regulators, and others. And my guess is, had uh, Motherboard not blown, you know, the whistle, my guess is that we probably would have found out at some point, somehow, that they were basically breaching their pledges that they made to me in 2018. But the reason it was such a public service is that Joe Cox exposed it, exposed it for a few hundred bucks, made it clear that these wireless you know, carriers were just walking all over the pledges. They made to me, in effect, the United States Senator and the um, Senate. And the best, most valuable part of the whole thing, it came right at a key time in the privacy debate. As you're starting the session of Congress, there are bills being discussed. And, uh, and that's why I was glad uh, Motherboard did it. Look, you've been a hawk on these issues for years. I mean, we're looking back on on the Snowden revelations. And you, we saw big telcos then being abusive with the same types of things. So I, I guess now, you know, and forgive me for being a little bit skeptical, is at what point are these companies going to be properly investigated and sort of brought their feet to the fire? Because this continues. Let me, let me take you back a little bit to some history. Um, you remember what happened on January 18th, 2012? Big day in tech. Want to take a guess? No. <laughs> More than 10 million Americans texted, tweeted, called, visited their senators to say, do not override Ron Wyden's hold. It's coming up in a few days on a very flawed bill that would do enormous damage to the internet. The bills were called PIPA and SOPA. They basically would have unraveled the architecture of the internet, what's called the domain name system. And these bills, the PIPA and SOPA bill, and the fact that we organized so aggressively to stop them, and we basically organized weekly meetings you know, with activist groups Prove the grassroots power of online activism. And at that time, more than 40 United States senators were co-sponsoring this very, very flawed bill. And I kept telling the leadership of the Senate, hey, folks, I don't want to be obstreperous here. 
But the reality is there are millions of Americans who spend more time online in a week than they spend thinking about their United States senator in a year. And when they find out that these bills are going to do so much damage to the Internet, they're not going to be happy and you're going to hear from them. And the leadership basically said, oh, well, Ron's a good guy and he knows a lot about this tech stuff. And and usually people say, well, he's from Oregon, you know, which always accompanies this story. And I would just say, I don't want to be difficult here, but you are going to be pretty surprised. And on January 18th, it was a Wednesday, uh, more than 10 million Americans weighed in. And on Friday... January 20th, Harry Reid, not very happy, called me up and said, you won. Your um, hold is going to prevail. We're not going to pass these very flawed bills that would do so much damage um, to the Internet. And so that is kind of a textbook case of the activism that is possible. I will tell people following this debate, I don't think we're there yet on privacy. We are not at that kind of flashpoint where, in effect, there'll be a nationwide mobilization and websites will go dark and all the things that we did in the battle to defeat Pippa and uh, and SOPA. But I think we're getting there. I think people are seeing that these mega corporations are vacuuming up everything in sight, all the personal information and where you go and what you do and what you buy and the like. And I'm not going to tell anybody following this discussion that we're there in terms of PIPA and SOPA kind of mobilization, but I think we're getting there. We're getting close. Yep, we're getting there. Well, especially when you look at something like some of these key government positions, and I'm talking about the agit pies of the world, who are, you know, I think a lot of people would agree, friendly with big tech or friendly with telcos. I wanted to ask you, how do you praise Ajapai's job so far and what he's done? Well, you can take four or five big issues, whether it's net neutrality, but this um, where he's just completely setting it out and obviously has allegiances to people he worked with and people who pay bills for him and, uh, and the like. But this last week where he f- refused to have a staff briefing to um, Chairman Pallone, been very helpful asset on these kinds of, uh, very helpful figure on all these um, kinds of uh, issues. That one really takes the cake because he basically said that he really didn't have time, couldn't work it in. This is a guy who can do cat videos and all kinds of other things um, for purposes of keeping people entertained online. But he didn't have time to brief the staff uh, of the Commerce Committee, the premier committee in the House that deals with privacy issues at the request of uh, of Chairman Pallone, a well-respected figure out. That one really take, takes the case. I think that's probably a new low in um, sitting out his responsibilities. Senator Wyden, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. We really appreciate you. Thanks for having me. Let's do it again. Yeah, absolutely. This week's episode was produced by Jason Kebler and was recorded by Mitch Rackin and John Northcraft. John Northcraft also edited this week's episode. Thanks so much to Senator Ron Wyden for joining us, and thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you like the show, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or tell your friends about it. We'll be back with more next week.
that's it for this episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can find Cyber on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, and any other podcast app you use. As I mentioned in our previous episode, we have a listener's survey live on the website. These surveys are crucial for us to better understand who are the folks who listen to Malicious Life, which in turn helps us to get the sponsorships we need for the show. So by taking the survey, you're more than doing your part in helping us keep the show going. Also, anyone who takes the survey gets a special bonus episode, an interview I did with Chris Weisopel, a.k.a. Wellpond, an early cybersecurity pioneer and founding member of the famed Loft Hackers Collective. Visit malicious.life and look for the banner on the right. Also, we're now open for new advertisers on the show, so if you or your organization are shopping for a new and cool sponsorship opportunity, let us know. Contact us at Eliad at malicious.life. That's Eliad, E-L-I-A-D, at malicious.life, or Ren at ranlevy.com. That's R-A-N at R-A-N-L-E-V-I dot com. Follow me on Twitter at, at ranlevy and at maliciouslife for updates on new episodes. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media in collaboration with Cyberism. Find out more at cyberism.com. Bye-bye. Oh my God. Oh my God. CK Music. Music.